pride. I, mean, I think that gets at what, uh, what we're all saying here. We set up, uh, you know, Romans 1, as Rusty said, we set, we set up uh, gods, set up ourselves as gods, and we do it because, in part, we, we're looking for a substitute. We have, we have this, uh, this need, this hole in our heart, as you're saying. Uh, um, now, let's, let's skip on to, to one, one part of the Bible that I want us to, to focus on for a second here, and that's 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let me encourage you to turn there. We'll be starting here. 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is in the smack dab in the middle of the history of Israel. This is Samuel, the prophet. He makes his sons judges. I'm just reading the context here. His sons didn't walk in his ways. They were bad. They were not good judges. I'll begin here at verse 4. So there's a problem. You have Samuel, who's a great guy, godly guy, awesome. His sons aren't awesome. So what happens? All the elders of Israel, they gather together. They say to Samuel, Samuel, look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Then down verse 9, God says, Warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And then Samuel goes into the type of king they're going to get. Here's the basic question. Sometimes people come to this, this, this text and they say, Look, Here's the problem the Bible says. We're not, we're not British. We're good Americans. And the Bible shows us right here that it's wrong to have kings. The Bible, according to some, in 1 Samuel 8, says that the very idea of a king is a bad idea. Now, this dovetails quite nicely with what we've been tracking in our culture, the, the idea of pride. It seems like 1 Samuel 8 says king equals Bad. Greg. No, it's not. King is bad. It's the king they chose is bad. Their method or who they're looking to. So you're saying King Saul. Right. Well, King David. They're not going to make it. Okay. Because they're choosing a human king, a sinful king. So human king equals bad. Okay. 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 Human king is bad because God as king is good. Anybody want to challenge that? That's Greg's formulation. Human king bad. God as king is good. We all agree. Are we... Uh, not in agreement. Okay. Everybody likes you, Greg. They like what you're saying. They're picking up what you're putting down. Well, let's look and see. And the way to answer this question of, of what, what is a king, is the Bible anti-monarchy? What is the Bible's view on a king? And what is the Bible's view on David? Particularly, let's go back all the way to the first part of the Bible. Let's go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. We have to start here. 
if we're going to understand what God wants from us as humans. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, livestock over all the earth. And then verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, every living thing, etc., etc. What do we see here? What we see here is that in the very warp and woof of creation, we have God saying, rule over it. He says to his humans, his creatures, you need to rule. You need to subdue. You need to have dominion over creation for the glory of God. And so right from the beginning, there is a sense, I'll put it to you, that there is a sense of human rule. in the very creation mandate. But let's continue. Genesis 3, verse 15, that section we've been looking at so often, that first blush of the gospel, what is in this first blush of the gospel? Warfare. Warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That's a little hint that this rule is going to be costly after the fall. There's war. We move on to the covenant with Abraham, chapter 15 of Genesis. And you don't have to turn to all these places, but uh, chapter 15 includes the idea of rule, of judging the nations. You'll be sojourners, verse 13, chapter 15. You'll be servants in a, a, a foreign land, but I'll bring judgment and you'll come out with great possessions. The idea is that you will be Free and victorious. In fact, in uh, chapter 17, verse 6, God says, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So in the Abrahamic covenant, in that covenant of grace, God says, kings are going to come from you. That's interesting. And of course, we get through the book of Exodus. We have Pharaoh as a false king an anti-godly king. And we have the beginning uh, of Joshua and Moses as rulers in some sense, but not quite kings. And then we get into judges. Now, what would you say if I had to ask you, you've read the Bible before, what is the difference between a judge and a king? Or how do judges and kings differ. What's the difference between a judge, and not in our day, of course, but in the Bible sense, what's the difference between a judge and a king? To help you out while you're thinking about that, let me preview the cycle of judges. This is the cycle that happens over and over again. The people sin. They are oppressed. They cry out to God. God sends a savior, a deliverer, a judge. The judge delivers. The judge then dies. And there is sin again. And that's a cycle over and over again, roughly. So it seems like judges are reactionary. 
Great. Judges are janitors. They react to sin. Whereas kings, you mentioned something about decrees. Any other ideas? Other ways of putting it, Bob? Well, I would say that judges are probably lean more towards the religious end and the kings lean more towards political. Oh, that's a very good distinction, Bob. Very interesting distinction here. Judges, you're saying, are more religion and kings, maybe more political. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. I haven't even talked about priests yet, but that's a whole, that's a deeper category. Yeah, I mean, the kings are more, you know, organizing for war, and the mm -hmm. judges are more um, organizing for people. Okay. That's interesting, right? The, the judges and the people, that's an interesting connection. Mary? Temporary, you might call them band-aids. Whereas kings are supposed to be a dynasty, and we'll get to that, right? They're supposed to have sons. Remember, you remember part of the issue with Gideon is that he uh, he tries to make a dynasty. One, that's one of the issues with Gideon, and uh, that doesn't end doesn't end well. Yeah. Okay, very good. I, I think uh, I'll, I'll return to make a, a crucial point here about judges at the end or, or towards the middle of our time today. But uh, excellent, excellent. Let's turn to <clears throat> Deuteronomy 17. I have it on the back of your handout. You can just flip over. And uh, he, here, here is God's idea of a king. Deuteronomy 17. Verse 14 to verse 17. When you come to the land of the Lord your God's giving you, and you possess it and dwell it in, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. No foreigners. Verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or go back to Egypt, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. We'll stop there for a moment. So God actually plans for kings. And this is one sign that human kings aren't actually bad. God plans for kings. And he gives three restrictions. Each restriction is important. Well, first he says that they have to be from you, not a foreigner. We'll, we'll assume that. But um, he says in Deuteronomy 17, there are these three restrictions. First, no horses. Does God hate dressage? Does he hate equestrian? Does he hate the horses? Why is this in here? Why is one of the restrictions, don't get horses or go back to Egypt to get more horses? What is it about horses? He's not a fan of black beauty? Yeah, they pulled the chariots, which were, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so Greg's getting at the really the key idea here, which is maybe not totalitarianism, but 
a, a, a large army, right? He's not to have a military designed to expand his empire. He's not to have a mighty force used to exercise dominion over the whole world because Israel's not, not called to do it. That's not how they're going to attract people. The nations are going to come to them. They're not going to expand outward and destroy all the other nations. They're not supposed to have an army that's mighty so that they trust in it. See, all, all three of these are about kind of what Bob was saying before at the very start. All three of these no's are getting at an idol. All three of these no's are getting at what typically happens when you and I become proud. And this first no says power. Now, second, second no. Wives. Verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. What's the issue with wives? One. No wives, plural, just one wife. What why? What's the issue with the wives? You think of two. Okay, give them to me, Greg. What do you mean by creation? Yeah, so the obvious answer, the answer we kind of go to, which is the, nat the natural, you know, creational answer would be the, the seventh commandment, right? Or, or creation, right? One woman, one man. Okay? And that's fair, but I don't think that's really what's here. I mean, that's, that's I don't taken as obvious. He's already given that in the Ten Commandments. Why, why for, for a king is this command given? I think there's a second reason, and maybe you're going to tell me, Greg. Well, because more likely they'd be arranged marriages for political reasons, and again, the, the heart would be pulled away. And that's the key, right? That's what the actual text says in verse 17, lest his heart be turned away. And that's, that's, the, that's the key, because what did the nations do to cement their, their alliances? They traded off women. They traded off... Uh, princesses or daughters to one another uh, to kind of cement. It's kind of like a, I hate to say it, sort of like a political hostage or political football. You know, today we sign on the dotted line, uh, but back in those days, they used their, their families, right? And so this is about the danger of alliances, which also would lead to not trusting God. And the last no is the no of money. He shall not acquire for himself except a silver or gold. Why is this? This is not complicated, I don't think. There's no trick answer here. What's the issue with too much silver and gold? Greed and covetousness. That's exactly the case, Mary, right? Not He is not to be a super corporate Capitalist. He is not to acquire money as a security apart from the Lord. I mean, isn't that why we get our stock? Isn't that why we, we invest in whatever we invest in to have security? And yet the king that God brings is not to trust in silver and gold. Last thing about a king. Um, look at verse 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, speaking of Deuteronomy, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it, in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. 
and that he may not turn aside, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the key here is that the, the king is, this is the fourth rule, the king is under a law himself. The king is under a law. That was not usually the case. You see, in Egypt, in Hammurabi, you think of the Code of Hammurabi. Who wrote the Code of Hammurabi? Hammurabi. The king wrote his own law. But in Israel, there's a pre-existing law. You see, in Egypt, in Babylon, there's a general sense that, yes, a, a king should follow some sort of justice, but there's no actual law. He makes it up. And maybe Hammurabi is really wise, and we still read it. I read it you know, when I was in my history classes growing up, and there's some wisdom in it. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that sort of thing. There's some basic common, you know, common grace or natural law, but here, with God's king... God's king has God's law, and he's under it, and he needs to read it. He needs to uh, read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. The point is that even the king, the king is under authority. The king is under God. In Egypt, Pharaoh was not under the God. Hammurabi wasn't under God. Oh, maybe, maybe he went to the temple every so often, but he's not under Marduk. He's not under the gods. You see, Old Testament kings are under, are under authority. Now, any questions on Deuteronomy? Yes, sir. You wouldn't interject a part and you couldn't be a foreigner as being a rule? Yeah, yeah, you can, you can tack on that one if you want a fifth rule. I mean, that's, that's kind of obvious. Yeah, I mean, that, that's true. If you want to, if you want to, if you're counting up rules, because um, he has to be, he has to be your brother, right? Very good. Um, so let's now move on then to Second Samuel seven. I hope I've kind of hinted at us already that God does not set out to avoid kingship; that God sets up for us the idea of kingship. When we come to Second Samuel uh, seven, we skip over First Samuel eight, and the issue with uh, Kings before David, the issue with kingship in Israel is not kingship. The issue with kings in Israel is that they are not following these rules. They are kings like all the nations. The request is made to Samuel, we want a king, and this is the key phrase, like all the nations. And particularly, like all the nations, means horses, wives, money. And it also means, Bob mentioned something like this, it also means a king as a general. King fights wars for them. This is part of the issue laid out in 1 Samuel, where God says, I'm supposed to be fighting your wars. I'm supposed to fight your wars for you. And now they want to bring in somebody who, who fights their wars instead of God, that they might trust in him. So we come here to David. We come here to 
Second Samuel 7. Let's look at the, uh, the, the text here. This is God's promise to David. Here's the, here's the, uh, the background. God's given rest to David. David lives in his own mansion, his own house. Uh, God has given David a period of rest. He's victorious. He's now king. He's in Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that he's never going to have war, but uh, David has a desire. He has a good desire. He wants to build God a house. He says to Nathan the prophet, his buddy, look, I dwell in a house of cedar. The ark of the Lord dwells in a tent. Nathan says, do it. The Lord's with you. And yet, uh, Nathan's wrong. God, uh, God comes, and I mean, Nathan was right in, in what he thought at the time, but God comes and reveals to him that uh, David ain't going to build a temple. And the key is beginning in verse 9. Well, maybe verse 8. Here's what you're to say to David, Nathan. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut up all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them. They may dwell in their own place. Violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly from the time that I appointed judges. Interesting, he brings up judges. I will give you rest. And then here's the key promise. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. Now, there's a little bit of a wordplay here on this word house. It can mean a building, but a, the word house can also mean a dynasty, a family. And God, David says to God, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a temple. And God says, no, you're not. I'm going to build you a dynasty. This is first, Second Samuel seven thirteen, uh, well twelve I guess. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with a rod of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul and your house and your kingdom. Made sure forever before me, etc., etc. The focus here, therefore, is twofold. One, it's not on God's house. Two, it's on David's house. It's on David's house, and God said this is going to be a forever house. I'm not going to take it away. And this is a promise that is unconditional. I will do it, God says. Very similar to what he said to Abraham. I will make you great. I'll bless you. This is part, therefore, of that covenant of grace we've been looking at. Secondly, what kind of relationship? What kind of relationship is mentioned here between God and these kings or this future king? There's a certain kind of relationship that is unique here. What's the relationship? It's right there in the text. Father, father-son relationship. It's the relationship of a family. It's therefore a forever family. It's a father-son relationship. A forever family. Father, 
and Son. This is significant. And it's connected to discipline, right? When the Son sins, God will discipline Him, but His steadfast love will not be taken from Him. As I took it from Saul. Now, this discipline may include each individual king, let's say in Judah's line, each individual king has measured up against this, this, this law, against this covenant. He's measured up against God, and he may be disciplined. We'll look uh, next time at the, the exile and the reason for the exile. But briefly, we see it partly mentioned here as God's fatherly discipline to his son. Israel, this king, this kingdom is seen as a as a son. Now, what's interesting here is that up to this point, Israel, the nation, the people, was God's firstborn son, but now the king is mentioned. He singular. The king becomes particularly known as son. And so on the one hand, there is this unconditional forever promise, and yet individual sons may sin. And so there is a condition laid here. The condition is the son must be faithful or he's going to be disciplined. Doesn't mean that God's promise isn't going to stand. But it does mean that the king is called to obey. Because the people will either experience judgment or they're experienced blessing on the basis of the king. Any questions so far on that? Now, there develops a, a kind of principle that, that, that emerges out of this. There develops a principle that the, the king becomes the mediator for the people. The king becomes the guy who represents the people to God and God to the people. The principle gets declared, as the king goes, so the people go. You see, here's the question. This is why I asked about the judges, and this is why you can actually ask about the priests too. Didn't Israel already have a mediator? They had the priest. They had the sacrifices. What do the priests and the sacrifices and even the judges, what do they never give to Israel? Rather put it this way, what do the priests deal with? Sin. What do they not deal with? What do they not do? That the king is supposed to do. This is the core question. And if you don't have an answer, you don't have a, a... if you don't have an answer, it's okay. Yeah, they, they don't rule, right? Which, of course, goes back to Genesis, goes back to the garden. But there's a key distinction between the king and the priest and the judge. The judge, already mentioned, comes in with their sin. The priest deals with sin. The priest mediates, right, between the people and God with their sin. And here's the key issue. They don't have anyone who does anything positive until there's a king. They don't have. The point of king, the point of 
a king in Israel is to achieve active obedience, to achieve positive righteousness, to do good, to walk under the law. That's why, they, that's why they're a king under the law, to not be like the nations, horses, wives, money, but instead to achieve achieve uh, what what had been promised. You know, uh, many folks say, well, you know, the king, Saul, the king was given to Israel because they're so weak and they asked for it and God was kind to them. No, no, no. no. There, there's a truth. There's a grand truth to that. They were weak, but they were weak because they did not have an individual, a human, who would bring true righteousness. And so what this does is this zeroes in, you know, under, under Moses. We've looked at Moses. Under Moses, you have the whole people being looked at as righteous, right? So you might call this the zeroing in principle, right? Under Moses, it's the whole nation. Does the nation obey or not? Remember, we, we looked last time at Joshua 24. This is what Joshua 24 says. Joshua says, it's for me and my house. We will obey. Now, Joshua's the leader, but his obedience does not transfer, does not count for the people. He's not a king. He says, we'll obey. My house will obey. And they say, yeah, we'll obey too. And, and he says, no, you won't. You won't do it. They say, no, we will. And of course they don't. And there's curse. That's partly after Joshua. There's curse that comes upon him. And the, ju the, the judges can't do it. Sam they get worse. Samson's the worst one. Mail is or where to find him. Because he's barely mentioned. But gradually, the Bible, the Old Testament, narrows down the righteous requirement to one individual. It narrows it down to the king. Under the law. And you see what God's doing here. This is one reason why 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant is so vital. It's an advancement upon what went before. It focuses this question of obedience onto a person. It says the Mosaic covenant was great with dealing with sin, but it cannot achieve righteousness. It's good as, as far as it is, but God is advancing us here. And we see that, of course, with the first king, with King Saul. He shows us what happens when a king disobeys. Disaster. And David shows us what happens when there is a righteous king. Though, of course, he fails. Right? He's, not, he's not perfect himself. Right. I just say, yeah, he did fail. We seem to see that also there's the fulfillment of God's promise that my grace will, right. will abide. He, he came to repentance. Right. He, yeah, the Lord disciplined him. Yeah, 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 that's good. That's good. Now, here's 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 one question as we kind of move on even further. Why is it that David doesn't get to build the temple, right? David says, hey, I, I want to build a house for, for you, God. God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. Why is it that David doesn't get to build the temple, but his son Solomon does? 
It's a Bible question for you. Very good. Right. So we talked about kings being uh, wanted for their warfare, their generalship, their ability to fight. Even in, in the in the God, in, in Genesis three fifteen, the the serpent is crushed by the the seed of the woman. There's battle, and yet what we have here is it's a very good point. That's a excellent answer, Mary. Right, David is war. Solomon is the man of peace and rest. He is the one who brings peace and rest. And this begins to clue us in that no one fallen human can do both. It's a little signal we get that no one fallen human can bring victory in war and rest by himself. Um, of course, David is a king after God's own heart. He shows his trust in God. He is the obedient one. He is humble. And in fact, 2 Samuel 7 is before Bathsheba. So it's, it's not, he hasn't sinned flagrantly, right, at that point in time. All we see is God's goodness. So why does God delay? It's partly because of the war. It's also partly because of everybody else around him. Every other country, every other people, they had temples. But God wants to separate the desire from a temple for the need for a temple. God wants to be clear and say, I don't need a temple. I don't need a temple. Even the, the, even the Jews, the Romans were, were so befuddled by the Jews. The Greeks were like, who are y'all? Because you don't have a statue of your God. Y'all are so strange because you don't have statues of your gods. What are you doing? There's nothing we can actually worship. That's why they called the Jews atheists. The Jews are the first atheists because they didn't have an actual image of their God. Because God was showing them, I don't need a temple. And so David is the time of preparation. And yet we come here, and as we, as we conclude, we of course have to look forward here to the way in which David shows us Jesus Christ. Because the Bible can call Jesus Christ God, uh, King, in two different ways. He is our mediator. He is that one king. He is born under the law. He is born of a woman. And yet Christ, and I think I have a quote here on the back from Bavink, Christ is over God's house as son because he is the son by whom God himself speaks to us. He's not a third party. He doesn't intervene between God and us, but he himself is son of God. At the same time, son of man, head of all humanity, he does not stand between two parties. He is those two parties in his own person. And so Jesus is, yes, the perfect man, the perfect king, the perfect human king. The Bible says we need a human king. We need one to stand in our place, to represent us to God, to not just deal with our sin as a priest, but to actively fight and battle, to actively bring peace and rest. And what David and Solomon couldn't do together because one was a man of war and one was a man of peace. And of course, they both sin flagrantly. Jesus Christ does as the true human king, and yet he is, of course, the God king. He is king as 
the Lord of life, as the Creator, as the Sustainer. This is, as Bobink says in that bottom, this is a beautiful quote, that's why I include it. The kingship of Christ is very different from that of earthly rulers. It's in God's name, subject to God's will. It's not a kingship of violence and weapons. It's governed in a very different and superior way. It rules by word and spirit, grace and truth, justice and righteousness. You see, the emphasis in the New Testament is much less on Christ as our divine king. It's much more on Christ as the new David, as the second Adam. And that's why Peter can call us a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, right? Combining king and priest together, a holy nation under our king. We are sub-kings. If you want to put it in American terms, I guess we're vice presidents. But what we have here is a picture of the fact that we need a king. And we have, we have the best one. We have the King who mediates and the King who achieves rest for us. We have one who fights and defends. Our, our, our catechism says, what are the benefits of Christ's kingship? And it answers, he, he rules and defends His people. Do you know you need defending? And that's one of the basic applications of kingship. We, we, we began today saying that we live in a culture that is anti-authority. And the Bible says, no, you can't live in that way. You're never, it's never going to work that way. You're going to be proud and self-righteous if you act that way. And the fact the Bible comes to us and, and, and shows us the beauty of a true king, a king who lives for the people, who gives his life for the people. He's not just a general who fights in the front lines, you know, as, as Patton and Rommel did. He, he does that, of course. But he does more than that. See, the problem with both Patton and Rommel is that they died. They got killed. And the war wasn't, wasn't over yet. They didn't actually get to enjoy the rest and accomplish the rest. They just fought. Like David. David fought. And the Lord only gave him a little bit of rest. But the beauty of our king is that he doesn't just fight in the front lines. He's not just the general, the soldier. He is the king who rules in the peacetime as well. They say some presidents are better in war. Others are better, better in peace. You know, Churchill is remembered for being a great wartime president and not so great in peace. And the thing about Jesus is that he's good at both. And he's good for you. He is your king. He brings you peace. And he defends you from, from your sin and from the evil one and from the world. Praise be to God is the, the one who builds a house for his name. Any questions, comments? Cares, concerns, if we close. Push back. Let me close this in prayer. Almighty God, we praise you as the God who rules and reigns over your people. Thank you that you give us a king to fight our battles. You give us a king also to bring rest. I pray that as we come into your presence, you would once more shower all the gifts of your kingdom on us, that we may live lives as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We praise you and pray this in the name of Christ, our great King. Amen. Thank you.